And last week we saw that there were these parallel accounts of the angel Gabriel coming and giving a prophetic word. The first time God had spoken prophetically that's recorded in Scripture in 400 years. The book of Malachi, closing out the Old Testament, warning that the Lord was going to come and that an Elijah-like prophet would declare his coming and that there would be a message of repentance preached. And so the angel Gabriel speaks to Zacharias, the husband of Elizabeth, who is advanced in age, well beyond the years of childbearing. She's, she's been barren her whole life. Uh, it's brought great shame and a stigma on her in that culture. And Gabriel announces to Zacharias that your wife is going to be with child, and you'll name him John, and he will come in the spirit and power of Elijah to announce the coming of the Messiah. And he says that the, the boy, John, will be filled with the Spirit in the womb. So there's the first time we hear Luke mention that somebody would be filled with the Spirit. That John the Baptist would be filled with the Spirit in the womb. And so it makes you wonder, well, what, what does that mean? What would it mean that a baby would be born filled with the Holy Spirit? Are we talking salvifically? Like we know when we place our faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us. Was, was John saved in the womb and that's what he means? Or does it mean that he'd have a special measure of the Holy Spirit in some way that other people wouldn't? We, we would love some clarification there. And then we hear in this passage that Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit. And one would say, well, yeah, she's got John in her and he's filled with the Spirit. So by extension, she's filled with the Spirit. If your baby's filled with the Spirit and the baby's in you, then you're filled with the Spirit. But that's not what this is referring to at all. It's not in relation to John. In some way, Elizabeth herself was filled with the Spirit. In the parallel passage now, the Gabriel... Months later, appears to Mary, the mother of Christ, and reveals a similar miracle, but even greater. A baby against all odds. A baby, though, not just against all odds, but a baby against all nature. Supernatural. Some people could say about Elizabeth and Zacharias, wow, hey, one in a million Sometimes we hear these stories of somebody advanced in age having a baby. Uh, but a virgin having a baby? Impossible. It's not the way babies are made. And we'll leave it at that because there's young children in the room. Uh, on a side note, when, you, when we take our children away for their special trip to find out about the stork... Suddenly, after the shock and awe and disgust, they say, does that what it meant that Mary was? Uh, yeah, we, we just say in our home, she wasn't married to Joseph yet. and We leave it at that. Not much of a miracle there. And in fact, it happens in our culture all the time. 
It's not miraculous. Um, but in Mary's case, Gabriel says, you will be with child. And she says, not in doubt, but in, in uh, being perplexed, how is this going to happen? Because you know I d- don't have a husband. And Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow you and you will be with child. So there's another f- filling with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is very active at the beginning of Luke's gospel. And in order to understand his gospel, we need to understand the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the language that the Bible uses to explain the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Mary is, as opposed to Zacharias, who was rebuked for his lack of faith, and the punishment to Zacharias was that his mouth would close, he'd be mute. In fact, it's where we get the saying, he was dumbstruck or dumbfounded. Dumb being a a synonym for mute. Uh, We don't use that word for obvious PC reasons in our modern day. But he came out of the temple, he was unable to speak, and it was a rebuke for his lack of belief. Mary was, she was um, praised for her trust and her obedience. And we saw that contrast last week, and that was the takeaway, was that when we hear the word of God, we need to respond in faith. Even if it doesn't make sense to us completely, didn't completely make sense to Mary. So the story continues now. Mary was told that your relative Elizabeth, who is advanced in age and was barren, is now with child. But she's living in another city, the hill country of Judah. And no phones, no telegraph, no text messaging, no Instagram, no Facebook. She wants to go talk to her relative and confirm this. Not because she doubts, but in order to strengthen her faith. It's implied in the text that Gabriel told Mary, look, go talk to your, go talk to Elizabeth. And so she travels. And think about when you found out that you were going to be having a baby. You, You wanted everyone to know. It was exciting. It was your, especially if it was your first. Elizabeth went and hid herself away. And Mary went to Elizabeth before she went to anyone else, right? Because... Who's going to believe this story? I'm with child, and it wasn't Joseph. It was the Holy Spirit. Right. This, this is potentially embarrassing. And in our culture, it's still a little embarrassing. And that culture, this is a game changer. This is ostracism. You've got the scarlet letter, so to speak, on you. And you're going to carry that around with you the rest of your life. In fact, we see in Jesus' ministry, sometimes the Pharisees and scribes would insult him by alluding to his out-of-wedlock conception. They said, well, at least we have a father. Ouch. Uh, They thought it was an ouch. They were just showing their ignorance and their unbelief and their blasphemy. So she goes to, to confirm this and talk to someone who would understand. Who are you going to talk to? No, uh, no family life pregnancy center back then. Who are you going to go talk to? Let's go talk to Elizabeth. 
And so she goes to Elizabeth and it says after she gave her greeting and we think the greeting is just hello or hey, what's up or how you doing? But this term greeting is really pregnant with meaning. Totally pun intended there. It says in my notes, wait for chuckle. Um, <laughs> there we go. There it is. The greeting would have been everything that had happened to her, normally everything that was happening with extended family, right? Because how else would you know about your extended family? Somebody came to visit from another city. You got to catch them up on, on why you came to visit. And so that's part of the greeting. So she's told Mary everything that had happened. Excuse me. Mary has told Elizabeth everything that has happened in the greeting. And... When Elizabeth hears this, the baby leaps in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Notice she was filled with the Holy Spirit after she heard the greeting. There's a clue. What is going on here is the Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally enable Elizabeth to confirm the angel's promise to Mary. The Holy Spirit is going to supernaturally empower Mary, uh, Elizabeth to believe Mary's story and to confirm it and to praise or prophesy as led by the Spirit in response. So Luke one forty two, and she cried out with a loud voice and she said, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, nobody else in the culture would say that. To a pregnant teen with no husband. Nobody would utter those words. The Holy Spirit had to empower Elizabeth to say what is obvious to us as Christians. Well, of course she's blessed among women. And of course the fruit of her womb is blessed. Because the Holy Spirit has enlightened your mind to the truth. And you've come to accept the virgin birth. And that Jesus, whoever was carrying Jesus in their womb, would surely be blessed among women. And that the fruit of her womb would be blessed. But do you understand that this would have to be a supernatural event for Elizabeth to say this? It's not the normal reaction. You know, the normal reaction would be like, oh boy. Oof, this is going to have consequences. And sit down, child. Let's talk and... Let me just hold you and weep with you. And, and how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? The Holy Spirit empowering her to understand how the great privilege to be one of the first to hear the announcement of the Savior. And to have a relative be the mother of the Messiah. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? This Mary, Mary being younger, you wouldn't talk this way to somebody younger than yourself. That the mother of my Lord would come to me. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my, my womb for joy. Now we understand part of what it meant that John the Baptist would have the Holy Spirit in him from the womb. John in the womb knew he was in the presence of the Lord. Or in the presence of the vehicle that would hold the Lord. 
How would a how would a six month old infant in the womb know such things? Now, sometimes um, I would read to my daughter in the womb, and my wife would say, "She hears your voice, and when you come in the room, she she leaps, she moves around, which is really neat." But she kind of was like, "Hello, I'm not just a body here. How come no one's talking to me?" That was Jennifer. And, you know, you have a special bond with your, with your child even while they're still in the womb. But this isn't that. John had never heard Mary's voice before and knew at the sound of her voice that he was in the presence of the Lord. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. This wonderful prophetic message from the Lord. Mary, you are blessed for not doubting what would happen to you. For not being, you know, I don't want this. I don't want this notoriety. I don't want to have to explain to people what happened. So here we see the Holy Spirit empowering or enabling something for a specific task that only God could have accomplished through the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth isn't going to be saying these things on her own. Now, there's so much more the Holy Spirit does, but I wanted to start with what being filled with the Spirit does not mean. Okay, what being filled with the Spirit does not mean. And I I need to do some teaching on this. And for some, it may make you a little uncomfortable, and that's fine. But don't get up and leave. Don't get up and leave. Sit and, and, and listen, please. Early in the 20th century, the Pentecostal movement began using this term filled with the Spirit to mean something that the Bible never intended for it to mean. Pentecostals teach that being filled with the Holy Spirit, or they call it being baptized in the Holy Spirit, is a second filling of the Holy Spirit that happens after salvation and always is accompanied by the gift of tongues. So they saw the record of the book of Acts. The Christians were already saved. They were gathered in the upper room. They were waiting for the Holy Spirit. Flames, tongues of fire. They're speaking in tongues. And then later, Peter is preaching. And a group of Gentiles are filled with the Holy Spirit and and they begin speaking in tongues and and it happens two other times. And so they say, look at the pattern, that must be normative. So you come to saving faith and there just isn't much happening in your life. You're just kind of a run-of-the-mill, regular old go-to-church-on-Sunday Christian and then you have this event and you're filled with the Holy Spirit and it's accompanied by miraculous signs Notably, you can now speak in tongues. And you need to be baptized in the Spirit. Now, the Pentecostals correctly taught, biblically, that all true believers have the Holy Spirit already dwelling inside you. But you need this second filling, the second blessing, in order to be an empowered Christian. And you should want this second filling and you should strive after it. And there's people who could help you get that second filling. 
The Bible, though, does not teach that believers must have a secondary experience accompanied by the gift of tongues in order to be equipped for ministry. In fact, that scene in the book of Acts, when the Holy Spirit came upon the members of the early church, they were able to speak in intelligible foreign languages. Read the passage. You'll actually see the list of foreign languages they were able to speak. And it was a sign that the gospel was to go out to all the nations. Nathan covered this a couple Sundays ago. And as new groups of believers received the Holy Spirit, they too were able to speak in foreign languages. And that authenticated that the gospel was to go out to the Samaritans and the Gentiles. And then the last group to get it was the Apostles of the uh, John or followers of John. These are people John had baptized, had placed their faith in God, but they hadn't heard the gospel of Jesus Christ yet. And so that was the last group. Later, a second move of Pentecostalism came along. Uh, they call it the second wave or the charismatic movement. They said it started in Azusa, the Azusa Street Revival. And they corrected the Pentecostal teaching. We're thankful for that. You don't need to receive a second dose of the Holy Spirit in order to be a real Christian. There's no second class of Christian, they said. But... You can be filled with the Spirit, and it will be accompanied by speaking in tongues, though not always. And so it was kind of cleaned up the Pentecostal teaching. Because what ended up happening in Pentecostalism is if you didn't have the second filling, you were like maybe a Christian. If you were, you were some kind of second-class Christian. And so for a long time, the charismatic movement taught you're, you're saved by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. That is absolutely correct. In fact, if you're in this room and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, repented of your sins and received the free gift of salvation, don't wait till the end of this sermon. Believe now. Don't wait for some miraculous sign the scriptures say, if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. But you realize that there's an experience of the Christian walk where you get excited when you're saved. And then maybe months later or years later, you just kind of feel like you're not empowered. You're not as excited. You're not effective in your walk. And you see how enticing this doctrine is. Oh, I need an extra dose of the Holy Spirit. If, if you're in Christ, you have all the Holy Spirit you need to be saved, to be obedient to the Word, and to be effective in the kingdom of God. You have all the Holy Spirit you need. You need to cultivate faith and obedience to the Word. You can quench the Spirit, the Bible says. You can grieve the Holy Spirit by being disobedient to His commands. By making the Scripture say things that the Scripture doesn't really say. That's where you're going to experience a lack of power. 
Jennifer and I were saved in a in a a conservative Lutheran church in Elk Grove. We I grew up in a liberal Lutheran church. She grew up in a liberal Catholic church. After college, we went back to church. You know the story because we were just like that's what grown ups do. And uh, we were looking for a church with comfortable pews because I had a bad back. And large enough to hide where nobody would make us do anything. Those were our criteria for church. I hope you have a better criteria for church. These chairs have no lumbar support. So that you can cross that off. It is big enough to get lost here though. But we search you out. And we greet you and encourage you to join Bible studies and, and eventually serve in the church. That church was planting a church on the other side of town. And the, the associate pastor secretly, I don't know how secretly, but definitely secretly wanted to take the church plant in a more charismatic direction. But he was afraid that if he explained to the mother church how charismatic he was going to go, that they wouldn't plant the church. And so he decided that he would slowly reveal the things of the spirit to us because not everyone's ready to handle the higher teachings of the Holy Spirit movement. So again, we're running into a second class of Christian. Regular Christians and then the enlightened, spirit-filled Christians. And the church plant started with reading the Word of God, explaining the Word of God. Pretty much everything we're going to do in the discipleship class was being taught. And we, we placed our faith in Jesus Christ. We were growing in the word. We were being sanctified. And then we were invited to a Joyce Meyer conference. You know Joyce Meyer, the pastor, quote unquote, who doesn't have a church or an elder board or any accountability. And we went to this Joyce Meyer conference and the, the worship seemed very powerful and everybody was really into it and the music was cranked up and and she was talking about, do you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit? We didn't know what that was, but it sounded great the way she explained it. Yeah, I, I want that extra power. I want a Christian life set apart from the regular Christians. It was really appealing to my pride. And she said, well, then you need to receive the Holy Spirit. And she, she led 2,000 people like in this arena how to to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And suddenly everyone around me started speaking in uh, no offense if, if, if you're a gift of tongues person, gibberish to me. And I'm like, whoa, I can't do that. And the harder I tried, the more I couldn't do it. And the people around me said, you're trying too hard. That's the problem. How do you try hard not to try hard? I was like, oh, man, up until that point, I was so excited about my salvation, but that was a real downer for me. Well, I can't do this thing, and I guess I'm not as spiritual as other people. And, and um, I just, I can do it, but it's obviously fake. You know, I, I can, you know, I could do that, but I was like, that's obviously not real, and these people must authentically be doing that. So that was the first time in, in, in my new walk as a Christian that I thought, 
man. I thought it was exciting to read the Word of God and study it and interpret it and obey it. And, but there's this other thing and I can't do it. Since those days, a third wave of charismatic teaching, and they call it the third wave, the new apostolic reformation led by C. Peter Wagner at Fuller Seminary, right here in Pasadena, Fuller Seminary, big seminary professor there. Uh, he claims the gift of apostleship did not end with the apostles, and conveniently, he himself is an apostle. And that, no, you don't need that second blessing, but if you want to be effective in evangelism and discipleship, you need that extra dose of the Holy Spirit. They call it power evangelism. Look at the early church in Acts. They were doing signs and wonders, and that's why people came to faith. And that is how it's supposed to work today. And so even though I never received, quote-unquote, the gift of tongues, I was convinced in this charismatic church I had the gift of apostolic prophecy, that I could speak new biblical truth when I preached that was on par with Scripture and that I could discern things about people spiritually that they uh, needed to be revealed to them. Talk about a power trip, right? And it caused me to study the Scripture less because studying is so contrived, but higher-level Christianity must be from the Spirit, and He'll just reveal things to me. We would often sit in circles and pray, and the leader would say, did anyone get a vision? So we would read the Scripture, pray, somebody would get a vision, and base their interpretation off of that vision. So the regular, run-of-the-mill interpretation of the Scripture, yeah, it's valid, but there's a deeper, more secret meaning and you need to just let go of all that study and all that effort. And you need to let God just reveal these things to you. And praise the Lord by His grace at some point, Jennifer and I realized something's just not squaring with Scripture here. And that is when we left for seminary and, and got good Bible teaching good Bible training. Now, we understand that we've all seen well-taught people in church have some kind of cold, dead faith. In the Lutheran church we were in, a charismatic Lutheran church, which just sounds like a paradox, right? They used to call those people the frozen chosen because Minnesota and, you know, the Scandinavian roots of the Lutheran Church, the frozen chosen. Certainly, the Word of God, if it dwells in you richly and you're obedient to the Word, it should cause us to be filled with joy and excitement and conviction of sin and conviction to be obedient to the Word. But... The antidote isn't to say we need to get away from the Word and away from study and we need some experience, some higher level experience. You, you don't cut the tether from the Word and just float out into space. 
it feels exciting at first until the first trial comes along and now you're spinning off into some spiritual realm and you're not grounded to the Word of God anymore. Now, this isn't what would be considered a charismatic church. Some would say, ask, is this a cessationist church? Well, it depends on how you define cessationism. Cease, to cease. We would teach that the way that certain gifts of the Holy Spirit were expressed in the days of the Apostle have ceased. But people still get healed today miraculously through the prayers of God's people. But it's not like an Apostle who just walked up to someone. And the Bible says sometimes Paul's shadow a handkerchief Paul used, used to have had the power to heal. We would teach that the apostles had that kind of power in order to authenticate that they were going to be the writers of the New Testament. That the authority of the church and the truth about Christ rested in those who had these special gifts. We would say that the gift of tongues is real and that God can empower people to speak in actual foreign languages they wouldn't have otherwise have known. But with great grace and mercy and love and caution, we would say that most likely the gibberish type tongues is not what the Bible was calling the gift of tongues. But I hope you heard my words closely there. With great grace and mercy and love, we are pretty sure, as an elder board, that is not what the gift of tongues was. We don't see how that would edify the church, and it doesn't match the picture we have in Acts. And then finally, we would say that the prophetic word of God is right here in your hands, your holy Bible. And that I may from time to time say some things that are spirit-inspired, but never are you to take my words and say they're on par with Scripture. You may say, Pastor, you were really filled with the Spirit today as you preached. And if by that you mean that the Holy Spirit was inspiring me to speak Scripture, new Scripture, I'd say, no. But if you meant that the Holy Spirit empowered me to explain the Scriptures in a way that helped you, I hope I'm filled with the Spirit every Sunday, every time I teach. Now, I understand we have taken this phrase and used it to mean things that the Bible never intended for it to mean, and we're all guilty of it, probably. I know I am. You have an, a particularly powerful worship experience one Sunday or at a conference and you say, wow, that was really spirit-filled worship. But think about what you're saying. If the guy sitting next to you didn't, wasn't particularly impressed with the worship band, would he say, nah, Holy Spirit wasn't here today? 
like we can do that. We can say when the Holy Spirit's here and when the Holy Spirit isn't here. Didn't Jesus teach that the Holy Spirit's like the wind? You can't see him. And he goes about and does whatever he wants to do because he's God and he's the third person of the Trinity. He is sovereign. And the Holy Spirit has submitted himself to the Father and the Son. The Holy Spirit does what the Father and the Son have sent him to do in the world. But he's just as much God as God the Father and God the Son. An inferiority of role by no means means that you have an inferiority of person. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all God. Three persons in one, as we sang this morning. Yet, Jesus submitted to the Father and the Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. Sometimes people will even say, you are trying too hard to be obedient in your own strength. You need to be filled with the Spirit So let go and let God. I understand the sentiment behind this. But it's confusing when somebody tells you it sounds great and it sounds very spiritual. And then you go home and you go, okay, so I should try not to be obedient. And you end up praying, Holy Spirit, fill me so that I will... Forgive this person I don't want to forgive. And you wait, and you wait, and you wait, and you blame your disobedience on the Spirit. The Holy Spirit wants us to forgive one another in Christ, Jesus. So what should it mean when you say, let go and let God? If you are trying too hard because you're trying to earn God's favors to be saved... You need to let go and let God. That's self-righteous work salvation. That is not how we're saved. And some people know the right answer there, but in their sanctification, they think that by working really hard, somehow they're more saved than the next guy. I'm super saved. You're just regular saved. You do need to work hard. The Puritans used to say, pray as if it all depends on the Holy Spirit, but work as if it all depends on you. Well, how much is me and how much is the Holy Spirit? There's no formula. There's no ratio. So we'll often say, it's 100% both of you. And when you stumble, don't blame the Holy Spirit. And when you're obedient to the word of God for the right motive without your pride getting in the way, you know that can only be the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit gets all the credit in our successes and we will take all the blame in our failures. So then here's the takeaway. There's, there's three, three ways the Bible talks about us being filled with the Spirit. Three ways. Number one, When you place your faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, the Holy Spirit is in you. So you're thinking, I heard the gospel, I placed my faith in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit came rushing into my heart. And that's what it looks like to us. And then you read the scripture, and you find out you heard the gospel. And the Holy Spirit had already rushed in and gave you the power to believe it. So you don't receive the Holy Spirit 
salvifically after you come to faith, the Holy Spirit regenerated you so that you could have faith. Even the faith is a gift of God. You were dead in trespasses and sin. The Holy Spirit made you alive in Christ. The Holy Spirit stays with you to complete the work that he started in you. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And gives you power to accomplish certain things in your life. And we'll go through a brief list of those things. Secondly, the Bible uses the term filled with the Spirit once in a way that you actively fill yourself with the Spirit. So all these people go around teaching, you need to be filled with the Spirit, and you just need to do it like this, and this is how you're filled with the Spirit. There's only one passage in the Bible where there's any active command that you be filled with the Spirit. That's in Ephesians 5 when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Every other instance of being filled with the Spirit is when the Spirit decided to fill someone. And then thirdly, sometimes the Holy Spirit empowers someone for a special situation. That's the third being filled with the Spirit. And that's what happened with Elizabeth. She was filled with the Spirit in that moment in a special way to be able to understand something and speak something that she could not have done by natural means. You say, oh wow, the Bible must be filled with with." Well, the Bible is filled with that, but there's only seven times that the formula and they were filled with the Spirit appears. Just seven times. And we, we say it as if we should say it all the time. You know people who are always like, oh, I was so filled with... And she he was so filled. She was so filled with Spirit. The Bible said was so filled with... You know, it's, it's like they don't have any other Christian euphemisms to, to use. Um, so let's look at, at these three just a little more closely. Number one, the regeneration. How does that happen? You know, I can tell you that it happens. I really can't tell you how it happens. It's a mystery of the faith. Ezekiel thirty six twenty six. even in the Old Testament... After years and years and years of Israel trying to obey God from their own strength, it became apparent that you you just can't obey God perfectly from your own strength. You don't have the desire to do it. Your, Your heart is dead. And so in Ezekiel 36, 26, we read, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. This is God saying, I will put it in you. I will give it to you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Interesting play on words there. I will remove the heart of stone, your hard heart from your earthly flesh, your sinful flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. So he's using flesh two different ways. Like you're thinking, I don't want a heart of flesh. Flesh is bad in the Bible. No, in this case, this kind of flesh is good. That's a soft, tender heart that is humble and receives the word of God. God has to do that for us. Our hearts are hard. They're stony. 
He has to till up the soil. And he says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And you say, well, does, does that cancel out the command that I have to be obedient to the Scripture? No, you continue to be obedient to the Scripture, but realize that God is working in you to make you obedient to the Scripture. So if I'm not obedient, is it God's fault? No, if you're not obedient, it is your fault. And if you are able to be obedient with pure motives, it's because God gave you the gift of regeneration. In John chapter 3, Jesus goes to a man named Nicodemus, a teacher of Israel, in the middle of the night. And he knows Nicodemus is wondering about salvation. And he tells Nicodemus that you need to be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, how is that possible? Do I climb back inside my mother's womb? And we're sitting there saying, what an idiot. He's being metaphorical, but he's not an idiot. He gets it. We think his response is ridiculous, but he gets it. He said, the first time I was born, I had nothing to do with it. I didn't choose to be born. I just popped out into the world. And he's like, so how can I be born again if I had no control over my first birth? And in essence, Jesus says, exactly. So all this teaching you've been doing, Nicodemus, as a teacher of Israel, that people have to work hard and keep the law and be perfect in order to enter the kingdom of heaven is erroneous and couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, it's so far from the truth that Jesus uses an example, an earthly example, that is so far away from works righteousness, you couldn't get any farther away. Your works mean nothing. You need to be born again. Yeah, but I wasn't born the first time on my own power or will. Exactly. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. By the way, that's not teaching baptismal regeneration. It's not saying you have to be baptized with water and the Spirit. It's saying, first you have to be born out of water. Remember? Well, none of us remember, but when we were in our mother's womb, we were surrounded by water. The second time you need to be born by the Spirit. You have to be born of water and then the Spirit to enter the kingdom of God. Everybody's been, been born of water, right? Paul echoes this sentiment in Ephesians 2, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, spirit, lowercase s, the spirit of Satan. We were obeying the spirit of Satan because we were dead to the Holy Spirit, to, to the truth. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. The Holy Spirit gave us the ability to believe. He goes on to say, by faith, and this too, a gift of God that no one may boast. The faith is even a gift. Now, we've said this before. We'll say it again. When you go and share the gospel, you don't tell people, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ if you're regenerate in the Holy Spirit and elect. 
You preach the gospel. People have their spiritual eyes opened. They're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. They come to saving faith. And we think because on the outside, it was when I believed that I was saved. But what was happening on the inside that you can't see is the Holy Spirit regenerated your heart so you could believe. God gets all the credit in salvation. We don't get an ounce of credit. James 1.18, he chose to give us birth. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, for you have been born again. There's that born again language. Not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living, enduring word of God. The word of God activated by the Holy Spirit caused us to be born again. 1 Corinthians 12, 13. By one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. We were made to drink. We didn't choose to drink. We were made to drink of one spirit. So... What was the Holy Spirit doing in the world before regeneration? Well, we see in Genesis 1 that he was hovering over the waters. So he was active in creation. We see um, King Saul being anointed by Samuel the prophet and receiving the Holy Spirit so he could be the first king of Israel. And then in his disobedience, he lost the Holy Spirit. And David got the Holy Spirit to be king. And then David sinned and he sang in one of his psalms, take not your Holy Spirit from me. So there we see the Holy Spirit empowering somebody for a special task. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will come into the world to convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. John sixteen seven. So the Holy Spirit brings conviction. So the Holy Spirit brought conviction to you by the word of God, regenerated you and stayed with you and is in you even now if you're a believer. What is he doing in you? He's there. He's powerful. He raised Christ. The same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Let's go through this list because I think you're going to walk out of here edified. Way more edified than if I just said, hey, would you like to be filled with the Spirit and then taught you how to speak in some kind of foreign tongue? I mean, listen to this list. The Holy Spirit confirms your salvation. Ephesians 1 talks about the Holy Spirit being a pledge. You're sealed. It's this language of an official document from the king being sealed with the signet ring. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You know you belong to God. Holy Spirit is your proof, your aprobone, it says in the Greek. Not quite a down payment. It's not like we have 10% of the Holy Spirit and we get the rest in heaven. It's a proof, a guarantee that God is going to save you all the way to glory. Secondly, he's our counselor, our helper, and our teacher. John 14, 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper. You got, a, you got your own personal teacher inside of you illuminating spiritual things. 
Yes, you still go to church, you still go to Bible study, you still listen to other teachers, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man cannot accept the things of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit enables you to learn and accept spiritual truth. Number three, he gives spiritual gifts. If you're in Christ and you have the Holy Spirit, you are equipped with spiritual gifts for the edification of the whole body and the unity of the whole body. You know, so I was told I had this gift of apostleship, but what really is going on is I have the gift of teaching. Obviously, it's what, it's what I do. I don't have some apostolic gift where when I write notes in my study, I'm writing scripture. You can read the Bible just like I do if you have the Holy Spirit. You can interpret it using the same rules of hermeneutics, same rules of interpretation, and we should land on the same meaning. But we recognize some people have an extra gifting of being able to communicate the truth and teach the truth. I don't have any kind of gift of singing. I don't have that special gift of administration some people have where they just can organize everything and boom. There's various lists in the Bible of the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, What else does the Holy Spirit do? He produces spiritual fruit in your life. He gives you the power to be sanctified. He produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in us. These are the fruits of the Spirit. Number five, he helps us exalt Christ. The Bible says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The Holy Spirit points us to Christ and exalts Christ. The Holy Spirit never came to exalt himself. He points us to Christ. It's about exalting Christ. Uh, Some charismatics have said that we put too much emphasis on the Bible and they call it the unholy trinity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Word. And I hate it when I hear that. God's Word, Jesus is the Word made flesh. The, The Word exalts Christ. And there's some kind of insinuation that we've replaced the Holy Spirit with the Word of God. That's ridiculous. The Spirit moved in the writers of Scripture to write the Word and moves in our hearts to illuminate our minds and the Scriptures exalt Christ. We can be Spirit-filled people without being Pentecostal. If you are in Christ, you are Spirit-filled. Number six, the Spirit helps us to know we're adopted into God's family and that God is our Father so that we don't fear condemnation. I love this one. I wish I had more time to expand on this one. But when you're in Christ and you're trying to be obedient and you fall into disobedience, the Holy Spirit helps you to understand, Paul says, that he's still your Abba Father, Daddy. Just like when my kids fail, I don't stop being their daddy. They know I still love them. And a loving father disciplines his children. 
Paul says here in Romans 8, 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So there's no more fear. Number seven, the Holy Spirit helps us yearn for glorification and even prays for us when we don't know how to pray. And again, the charismatic movement has taken Romans 8, 23 to 27 about the groanings too deep for words. And they say, oh, those groanings, that's, that's that tongues. I didn't know what to pray, so I just... And that's the Holy Spirit with groanings too deep for words. But the groanings are referring to labor pains. Read the whole context. In the same way a woman groans before she gives birth, he says all creation is groaning because creation remembers when it was perfect before the fall and it's looking forward to being perfect again. And our bodies groan. Does your body groan? Mine groans. Like literally, but metaphorically it groans because I'm tired of this body of sin, this body of death. And he says the spirit in us groans with groanings too deep for words because the Holy Spirit knows what a perfect relationship with God is not tainted by sin. I don't know what that is. But the closest I've ever felt to God in my life was when the Holy Spirit inside of me was yearning for something I didn't even know what. This perfect relationship with God. I don't know what that's like. You don't know what that's like. We have a little taste of it here. But the Holy Spirit in us knows what that is like and yearns and groans in us for that day when no more sin getting in the way of a perfect relationship with God. That's what that passage means. I wanted to close with with Ephesians 5.17. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Again, our friends, and I do say friends honestly, our friends in the Pentecostal or charismatic movement would often look to this passage and first wave Pentecostals were adamantly opposed to alcohol. Don't drink. And they replaced the drinking of alcohol with being filled with the Spirit because of this passage. And you can go on, on online if you've never seen this for yourself and, and pull up some YouTube videos of Pentecostal worship where people are acting drunk in the Holy Spirit. Nathan, you've seen this nod, yes, at the, your undergraduate college, which was a charismatic college. Strange, drunken type behavior posing as worship. Rolling around in the aisles, barking like dogs, all kinds of strange stuff. And then sadly, I think Nathan's testimony would probably be that those same people would then go out that night and and get drunk and do the same things. Only it was the alcohol causing it. And they would say, yeah, that's called being drunk in the spirit. The Holy Spirit was so powerful and thick on me that it caused me to do all kinds of strange things. And that's authentic worship. But I can't, it just doesn't seem consistent with the rest of scripture that that's what God wants for us. And praise God that he's made it crystal clear what this passage means. Because when Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians, he wrote three other letters while he was in prison. One to the Philippians, one to the Colossians, and and, and Philemon, the prison epistles. In Colossians 3.16, he uses the exact same wording. Listen to Ephesians 5 again. 
Do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. The idea here was that the pagans would get drunk in their pagan worship and then do all kinds of gross immoral things. And how can you sing songs, hymns and spiritual songs if you're drunk? In Colossians 3.16, Paul says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Same language. What's the only difference? Being filled with the Spirit is replaced with the phrase, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. When Paul says be filled with the Spirit, he means let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Teaching one another and admonishing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That is the only place in the Bible where the verb is in the active type uh, sense. You want to be filled with the Spirit? Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Amen? Amen. And while you're being obedient to the word, if God decides in his timing and his providence and in his sovereignty that you need a special filling of the spirit for a special task, then that will happen to you. You can't plan it on your calendar. You can't tell the Holy Spirit when to show up for that. Sometimes God in his sovereignty will give someone an extra filling of the spirit for some spiritual task but what you do is you be faithful in the things god has revealed to us in scripture let the word of christ dwell richly in you heavenly father thank you for being our god for giving us your son and for filling us with the spirit for regenerating us by the power of the spirit for sanctifying us through the leading and empowerment of the spirit and for bringing us all the way to glory Thank you, Holy Spirit. We ask your forgiveness for any time that we misrepresented your person and your work. Help us be encouraged by the work you're doing in us to make us into the second person of the Trinity. You are conforming us into the image of Jesus Christ. That is amazing. That is powerful. That is encouraging. Thank you for dwelling in us and wanting for us things that we don't even know we should ask. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.